Amen. Well, welcome again. I just want to say one more time, welcome to the college students. Really glad you guys are here. And uh, we are finishing up a series this morning in Jonah. We spent four weeks in the book of Jonah. You can go ahead and start looking now in your Bible to find Jonah. It's between Obadiah and Micah. I know that's really helpful to you. If you're grabbing a pew Bible, it's on page 657. And we're going to be finishing up. So it's fourth chapter, fourth week. And as Cody mentioned, next week we're going to be asking crucial questions that people ask about the Christian faith. So aren't Christians, next week we'll answer the question, aren't Christians hypocrites? Aren't they arrogant? Aren't they homophobic? Aren't Southern Baptists racists? What about the problem of science? These kinds of questions. So I hope you'll come. I hope you'll invite your friends as we open God's word and try to answer these hard but important questions together. Found Jonah yet? So where have we been? We've titled this series, How Not to Be a Prophet. And let me just summarize, especially for our guests this morning, where we've been. In Jonah chapter 1, God calls his prophet Jonah to go preach to the city Nineveh, which was extremely wicked, extremely violent, very brutal warriors. And Jonah heads the opposite direction. He goes to a place called Tarshish, which again, the opposite of what the Lord calls him to do. But God is after his prophet. He doesn't just let him go. So God sends this great storm that breaks up the ship and, and the sailors are panicked. They're seasoned sailors, but yet they don't know what to do and they cast lots, kind of like us throwing dice or drawing straws. The lot lands on Jonah. God is after this prophet. The sea continues to get rough and finally they, Jonah says, just throw me in. And so they throw him in and the sea is stilled and then there's this giant fish that God sends that swallows Jonah. And then Jonah finally comes to his senses and he prayers, not really out of affection for God, but out of affliction, he wanted out. And he becomes fish puke at the end of chapter 2. Then in chapter 3, Jonah's finally obedient. And he goes, and it's a three-day's journey into Nineveh, and he goes in about a day's journey and has this little measly five-word sermon, and the whole city repents. It's a city-wide revival because, as the prophet Isaiah says, God's word will not come to him empty. It will accomplish that which he sends it to accomplish. And so the whole city responds positively to Jonah's message. This is every evangelist's dream, right? What should he be doing as the whole city turns to the Lord? Remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So God throws a party Every time one sinner turns from their sin and turns to God. Here we have a whole city. God throws a party with one. Here we have a whole city. The response should be celebration, right? The story should say, well, Jonah rejoiced. He came in. They threw a party. They celebrated. And then he finally went home. But that's not what Jonah chapter 4 says. So look with me. Jonah chapter, let's start at chapter 3, verse 10, and read through the end of the book. Jonah 3.10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry and he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I, notice the emphasis here, when I was still at home? 
That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? And also, many animals. Look at verse 1 again. The whole city turns to the Lord. Look at verse 1 again. But to Jonah this seemed very wrong and he became angry. This citywide revival was exceedingly wrong to Jonah. The Bible might have a footnote there. It could be translated, it was exceedingly evil. To Jonah. This little word evil is actually used a whole lot of times in the book of Jonah. It's translated various ways throughout the book. But notice in chapter 1, verse 2, is the first time we see that little word where God said, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its evil has come before me. So God said Nineveh was evil, but it was exceedingly evil to Jonah that they were delivered. Jonah is madder about Nineveh's salvation than God was about their sin. God relents his anger. The prophet of God gets angry. This remind you of anyone else in the Bible? I mentioned him last week. He's the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. We probably all know the parable of the prodigal son. The son takes the father's inheritance and goes and squanders it and finally comes back. And what does the father do? With open arms, he receives him and he throws a party. And you remember what the older brother's doing? He's in the corner, you know, smug. He was the rule keeper. He was the legalist who has no delight when the father shows grace to the sinful little brother. He was Jonah. And that's the problem with legalism. The problem with thinking that our standing with God is dependent upon our performance is that it kills all joy. When we don't understand grace, it is a joy killer. When we think it's about us and what we do for God rather than God's grace towards us, We'll fall off two sides of the horse, right? Either we'll do well, some of us do well, we'll have good days, and then we'll become arrogant and independent. We'll begin to look down on others who aren't doing as well as we are. Or probably more often than not, at least for me, is I don't measure up, and so I despair. And I lack all joy. That's the problem of Jonah. That's the problem of the older brother. But grace produces joy. 
Grace teaches us that we're all on a level playing field. None of us can earn God's blessing, no matter how well we do. And so then we can rejoice when God shows others grace because we know just how much we need it. We've experienced lavish grace, and so we love. We can rejoice when God lavishes on grace to others, but not Jonah. The whole city of Nineveh receives grace, and Jonah gets mad. Here his heart is revealed. Look at verse 2 of chapter 4. He prayed. We were really privileged here to hear this prayer, this dialogue between Jonah and the Lord. And here's what he prays. He says, isn't this what I said, Lord? When I was back at home, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. He said, this is the reason I disobeyed. This is the reason I bailed. I knew who you are, God. I know that you are gracious compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I know you're a God of grace, and so that's why I bailed. I didn't want them to receive grace. I know who you are, so I went the other direction. Here he's using Scripture, actually, to talk back to God. Jonah knew his Bible, which is the scary part of this whole book. And here he's actually quoting a very important passage of Scripture. I want, to, I want us to read it. If you you got your Bibles, you can flip to Exodus 34. If not, we'll have it on the screen, I think. And it's a, an extremely important passage where God reveals himself. And this is in Exodus. This is to Moses after the giving of the law. And this is a passage that all Jews knew very well. Let me read Exodus 34, 5 and 6. It says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. This is actually Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Really important passage where God says who he is. And so you find all over the Psalms, the psalmist praising God using the language of Exodus 34. Let me just read a few verses to see how foundational this verse was, how programmatic this verse was when it comes to the character of God. Psalm 86, verse 5, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Psalm 86, verse 15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 103, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 145, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in in steadfast love. The prophet Joel later, chapter 2, verse 13, he is gracious, he is merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You get the picture, right? This is who God is. This is who Jonah knew God to be. And instead of delighting in it, he runs from it. Jonah appoints himself as theological advisor to the Almighty. And he makes the character of God, he makes the hope of the universe sound like a character flaw. The character of God here is a reason to praise. It's a reason to rejoice, not complain and not get angry. This is who God is and Jonah knows it and Jonah wants nothing to do with it. And this is scary, right? Jonah was a prophet. Jonah was a theologian. He was a decent theologian. He knew lots about this book. But he only accepted what fit with him. Anything in this book that didn't fit with what he liked, he just disregarded. 
didn't follow the God he claimed to serve. This is where doctrine is really important. Biblical theology is really important for us. Some of us in this room need to really grow in our understanding of what the church has believed for 2,000 years for historic Christian doctrine. But you've got to do more than just learn doctrine, right? I'm reading a biography by one of my favorite preachers. His name's David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was in London, faithful guy. And he says, I spend half my time telling Christians to study doctrine. And I spend the other half telling them doctrine is not enough. Jonah knew doctrine, but he didn't put it into practice. He knows the character of God, yet he despises it. He knows what God is like, but he wishes he was different. You see, God and his character and his mercy and his compassion and his grace had not yet affected Jonah's heart. Jonah claims to fear the Lord, but the problem is he really doesn't fear him nearly enough. To fear the Lord is to fear displeasing the Lord. Jonah lacks that fear. He says he worships the Lord. You remember that when the sailors asked him, hey, what do you do? Remember what he said? Look over at chapter 1, verse 9. He answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry lands. But he doesn't worship the Lord. He just merely gives lip service to the Lord. Truth of it is, he really only was in it for himself and his own comfort, for his own tribe. Jonah was a racist. He was a nationalist. But God is gracious towards all peoples. He's an internationalist. God and Jonah disagree here. Jonah doesn't share God's heart for all peoples. Jonah just wants God to bless his own tribe. He only wants his own people to flourish. And I've reminded us in this series every week that the point of the people of God has always been for the outsiders. Blessed in order to be a blessing to others, right? Let me remind you, if you haven't been here, Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world. The goal was that Adam and Eve would multiply and produce godly offspring until the whole world was filled with his glory, like the waters cover the sea. Of course, you know, in Genesis chapter 3, all that goes down the tubes. God has a plan. Genesis chapter 12, he calls one man out. His name's Abram. He was a pagan. He calls him and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply your family. You're even going to become a nation. And through you, I'm going to bless all nations of the world. That's the beginning of the forming of the people of God. And what is the purpose statement of the people of God? So that you will bless all nations of the world. That's the point of your existence, Abraham's family. And then God makes good on his promises. And in Exodus chapter 19, they become a nation. They grow and they become a nation. And they're about to be given the law. And there's this purpose statement again right before the giving of the law where God tells them, if you obey, you will be to me a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? Stay focused in their little holy huddles? No. They mediate between God and people. And so the whole nation of Israel was to be a priestly nation mediating. Their point was always so that pagan nations like Nineveh would receive blessing through them because they had the knowledge of God. And that's just renewed with the church, right? Jesus comes on and he restores Israel around himself. That's why he chooses 12 disciples like the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says, you are to be a light to the world. Just like Isaiah said, Israel was supposed to be. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. They ended up being like the nations. And so Jesus restores us, gives us the spirit, forgives us of our sins and says, you are a light of the world. And he says, as the father sent me, so I send you. Every believer is to be sent as an ambassador to bring blessing to the world. So then Peter, as we saw a few months ago in 1 Peter chapter 2 says, you church, you are that holy nation. 
You are that chosen people. You are that kingdom of priests. That's always been the case. Blessed in order to bless others. We've always been a so that people. This is what Jonah missed. Jonah forgot the very reason the people of God existed. And we, friends, can do the exact same thing. We must not forget why we exist. We don't exist for our career. What are you living for? We don't exist for accumulating cash, for stuff, for reputation, for our comfort. We exist to bring glory to God by giving ourselves for the good of others. Here's how Paul Tripp puts it. He says, your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It's bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom, and progressively shaping them into his likeness, and he wants you to be a part of it. So I plead with you not to miss the point of your life, like Jonah. Look at verse 3. Jonah says, now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. God, just kill me because I'd rather be dead than to watch you extend grace to people that I don't think deserve grace. In effect, he says, over my dead body, what a sad picture of self-centeredness. His sin has made him delusional. He'd rather die than to live in a world where God shows grace to sinners. You know, people only want to die when their life has no meaning left. And so if God gives grace to people like these Ninevites, Jonah doesn't have any reason to live. He wants out. Jonah had a problem with grace. We all tend to love grace until we're called to extend it for those we don't think deserve it. We're happy to receive it, slow to extend it. And when we don't want others to experience grace, the problem is really us. It's because we don't understand how badly we need grace. We don't understand the seriousness of our own sin. We don't understand the depth of our depravity. But when we know how badly we need grace, we're quick to extend grace to those around us. And we celebrate it when we see it. Jonah's problem was that he only saw his own sin. Friends, we are in trouble when the sin of others bothers us more than our own sin. That's the Jonah mentality. Contrast this with Paul's mentality, the Apostle Paul. Let me read from Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. Listen to Paul. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people those of my own race. He says he's full of sorrow, unceasing anguish, because his fellow Jews are not coming to faith in Christ. He would take their place if he could. Notice Jonah would rather die than see people saved. Paul would die so that people could be saved. I wonder in here, do we embody the Jonah mindset or the Paul mindset? I worry that too many of us are just apathetic 
about people who don't know the Lord. We just don't care if we're honest. Maybe because, again, we don't grasp the goodness of the gospel of grace. I mean, if we really understood how transcendent, how holy God is, and how far we fall short, then the cross would mean much more than it does. If we grasp the depth of God's love for us through the cross, we would want to tell others about this good news. We would want to be others-focused. So are we Paul or Jonah? Do we have the mindset of Paul or Jonah? Or even a better question is, what do we, what do we act like? What do our lives look like? Do they look like Jonah or do they look like Paul? Or they, if you examine the way you spend your time and the way you spend your money, in your thought life, is it all about me, myself, and I like Jonah or is it like Paul? How can I help the church grow and others join the church? Do we just sit around and talk about how wicked the world is? Or do we prayerfully engage and pray and share the hope of Christ with people? Does the handling of our resources, those that God has entrusted to us, does it reflect Jonah or Paul? Do our prayers reflect Jonah or Paul, is it me, myself, and I? Or is it, Lord, break my heart for the lost. Give me favor with my unbelieving neighbors. Give me courage to speak the truth. Really, the question Jonah leaves us with is, do we care about people? Or just our own? See, Jonah was a consumer. He didn't contribute. He just came to consume. He just came to God to get, not to give. He only wanted God for his own comfort and convenience. He wanted the benefits of having God on his side, but he didn't care about the mission of God. He wanted fire insurance. He wanted a get-out-of-hell-free card, but he actually wasn't interested in following God, wasn't interested in serving others, and maybe that's us. And friends, there is no assurance for people like this. There is no having Jesus as Savior but not Lord. So I wonder if there are some in here that claim to be Christian, claim that Jesus is Savior, but are not following him. Are you a consumer Christian? How are you contributing to the mission of God with your time, with your talents, whatever gifts God's given you, with your treasure, whatever financial resources the Lord has given you? Look at verse 4. But the Lord replied... Is it right for you to be angry? Notice this is the third time the word of the Lord came to Jonah. What grace. And he says, do you do well? Are you sure, Jonah, that you have accurately understood the situation? Is this your final answer? I mean, what grace, what patience the Lord demonstrates here. He doesn't, he doesn't condemn him. He wants Jonah to condemn himself. He wants him to stop and examine himself. He wants him to be brought to his senses. So he just asks him a question, Jonah. Jonah, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Look at verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Jonah's just pouty. He despairs when things don't go his way. He takes his ball and he goes home, but actually he does, and he stays around. He wants Nineveh to burn. And so he's thinking, is God really going to spare this hideous place with this hideous people? So he just waits and sees. And again, what should he be doing? Should be celebrating. Just like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, he should be bringing out the fattened calf and the aged wine or the fresh grape juice. 
should be celebrating. Instead, he sulks. Look at verse 6. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant, made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plants. God is not done pursuing his prophet. He appoints a plan, and of course, the plant obeys, like Jack and the Beanstalk, and Jonah becomes very happy about it. Notice again, look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. Nineveh repents, but to this, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, but now he's very happy that he has some shade. It's the first smile we see from Jonah in the whole story. He's glad, but he's only glad for his own comforts. Not for the salvation of sinners. And again, I want to ask you, do your prayers, do your use of time, do your resources, do your actions show that you care more about your own comfort or seeing sinners saved? What really brings you joy? The goal is that we will be brought joy when we see people moving towards the Lord. Whether that's people that don't know him, who come to know him, or as we see our brothers and sisters in Christ growing in the Lord. That's what should bring us ultimate joy. Things that matter 10,000 years from now. Jonah just cares about the gifts. He doesn't care about the giver. In chapter 2, we saw he was glad for his own deliverance, but he's angry when God delivers others. He says no to self-sacrifice for the sake of self-preservation. This puny little plant is of more value to Jonah than 120,000 people. Look at verse 7. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. God appoints a plant. Now God appoints a worm that attacks the plant. Our God is sovereign. He's not just sovereign over the big events of history. He's in control of even the minutia. And so he calls down a little measly worm. Worm number 7,500,027,013. Hermie, go squirm over there. Got a mission for you. Go have a feast. And the worm obeys. The worm obeys better than the prophet. God really is sovereign over all things. He controls the universe. Too many of us Christians often act like functional deists instead of theists, meaning we believe God created and just kind of let go, kind of like a watchmaker. He made the watch and then let it go. Not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not detached from his world. He is active in it, and we see it so clearly here in Jonah. And then he appoints a wind. He appoints the fish. He appoints the plant. He appoints the worm, and now he appoints the wind. And the sun beats down on Jonah's head so that once more he wants to die. He gets hot. The word can be used for temperature or for emotion, and he's both. He's hot physically and emotionally. And again, though, let me remind us, our tendency is to see all this as punishment. Jonah disobeys. God's punishing him. But this is not punishment. This is grace interfering grace. God is after this wayward prophet's heart. Jonah was easily replaceable. Could have just let him go, but instead he pursues him with these things. Being turned to fish vomit was for his own repentance and rehabilitation. Remember, that fish stomach was not a death chamber. It was a hospital room, a submarine of mercy, the storm, the sea, the fish, the worm, the wind. This is all 
God's kindness. This is an intervention of mercy. These trials are not retributive towards this prophet. They're restorative. God would have, could have just let him go, right? Remember, if I were God, two things. Number one, there would be no mosquitoes. Number two, Jonah would have drowned back in chapter one. Let's not get it twisted. That fish saved his life. Jonah would have died if it were not for the fish. This is grace. God is pursuing his prophet. And the Jewish people understood this well because on the day, probably more than any other day of the, the, the liturgical calendar of grace was Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And the Jews would read aloud the book of Jonah because more than any book in their mind, it expressed the grace of God. God will pursue his children. He will not let us go in the wrong direction for long. He'll hurl some wind our way to wake us up. He'll send a storm to shake us out of the stupidity of our own sin. And he's got the entire universe at his disposal. So we do well to turn to him, not try to run from him. He has more ways of pursuing us than we have of evading him. He's sovereign. He is meticulously sovereign over all things. As Ephesians 1 says, he works out all things according to the counsel of his will. So we've seen just in Jonah, he appoints the wind, the sea, the storm, the lot, the landed on Jonah, the fish, the plant, the worm, the wind. God is so kind to interrupt us. It's what we don't like. It's uncomfortable grace, but that's what it is. And so friends, don't despise the desert. The Lord may be pursuing you there. Look at verse 9. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. It sounds like my four-year-old. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a fourth time. Grace. And God says, Jonah, let's look at the values of your heart one more time. Let's analyze this anger of yours, Jonah. You only had that plant for a little while. It's not like you were a gardener. It's not like you planted it, intended it, watched it grow only to die. No, you've just been sitting there. How much more so should I care about the Ninevites whom I made and whom I love? They don't know their right hand from their left. They don't know any better. Reminds me of Jesus' prayer on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. They're so confused. They need me, Jonah. So we see the heart of God. He cares about seeing people redeemed. Jonah is concerned over the plants, but not 120,000 people perishing. But God cares about these people. He even cares about the animals. Some translations say there at the end, and a lot of cattle. A lot of cows. I know all dogs go to heaven. I guess cows too. Promised land has to flow with milk somehow, I guess. <laughs> Jonah cares about the plant. But aren't even animals more important than plants, Jonah? Right? No one likes asparagus unless there's a slab of beef next to it. No one wants Brussels sprouts unless you've got some bacon mixed in there. God's mercy is so vast, even cattle are swept up into it. Jonah, if you don't care about the people, what about the cattle? God cares about all of his creation, not even a sparrow we read in the Gospels, falls to the ground apart from the Father. 
The end. That's it. No happily ever after. No resolution, really, but I think Jonah got it. I think Jonah turned from his selfishness and got engaged with the heart and mission of God, which is why we have the book of Jonah. I mean, who would tell such a story about himself unless he was changed because of it? I think it ends here sort of in this open-ended way so that we will ask ourselves if our hearts are more like God's or more like Jonah's. He wants us to ask ourselves, do we have some Tarshish, some area where we're saying no to God's invitation to live for him and we're choosing our own way. The question is aimed at Jonah's heart, but then Jonah vanishes. And here we are left and we're brought face to face with the challenge of the story. How will we respond? If Jonah could talk to us, he would plead with us and say, look at my life. You can't outrun grace. It is futile to run from his presence. It's delusional. It ends in self-destruction. It's like trying to catch smoke with the nets. He was self-consumed. I, me, or my occurs 10 times in Jonah chapter 4. Jonah would say, drop your agenda. Life's not about you. Oh, your life would so much be larger if you would be removed from it. It's about him. See, in Jonah and in us, there's this clash. Kingdom of self or the kingdom of God. A clash of kingdoms. And so what kingdom is driving us? Is it God's kingdom or is it our own? What kingdom is setting our schedules? What kingdom commands your time and your attention? What kingdom drives your passion, your thoughts, your resources? What kingdom shapes your marriage and the nature of your parenting? Are you living for your own kingdom of comfort or for the kingdom and mission of God? You will be serving one of the two, right? Great theologian Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. It'll be self or it'll be God. And listen, we're all guilty. Every person in this room is guilty of serving our own kingdom rather than God's. We all care way too much about our own comfort. And the gospel of Jonah is that God is merciful and gracious. As we confess our shortcomings, God, I am more like Jonah than I am like Paul. As we confess it, we can go to him, not run from him, because he's a God of grace and mercy, abounding in kindness. As the Puritan Richard Sips put it, there's more grace in Christ than sin in us. So we can learn from Jonah's negative example in this book, and we can seek to deny ourselves, follow God's agenda, engage in his mission. We have the greatest privilege and responsibility and message of grace in the world. It's the message of the grace of the one to whom Jonah points. Centuries later, God would send another prophet, one, would, one who would hear the word of his father. And he wouldn't run away from, but he would run into the will of his father. And he would say there's something greater than Jonah. He'd be a prophet, but he would never run from his call. He would embrace it. He wouldn't try to bail, but he would obey even to the point of death. He didn't go to a people who might harm him like Jonah. He went to a people who would certainly harm him by nailing him to the cross in the place of sinners like us. So there would be grace more powerful than our ability to run. He didn't try to evade his call, but he faithfully and willingly pursued it. Jonah tries to sell away from the pagan city. At the beginning of the ministry of this prophet, he actually goes straight to 10 pagan cities. We know them as the Decapolis. 
Jonah sits around outside the wayward city to see if it would be destroyed, but he weeps over the city of Jerusalem because of her sin. He doesn't get angry when sinners repent and receive mercy. He delights in it. He came to seek and to save the lost. He too slept on a boat during a storm. He too was instrumental in the ceasing of its rage. He's not repelled by sinners. He's attracted to them. He doesn't seek to avoid Gentiles. He gives them mercy. He doesn't spurn his enemies. He lays down his life for them. He knew the heart of God. In fact, he was the heart of God. He willingly sacrificed himself into the depths for three days and three nights. He would say this, For just as Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He will calm all storms. He will destroy destruction. He will still all waves. He will break brokenness. He will put death to death. Something greater than Jonah is here. His name is Jesus. And he is worthy.